When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ad Astra per Aspera. Protecting Earth is not an easy job, even for a group as experienced and capable as the SCP Foundation. Sometimes, as we've seen, they fail in this duty, and things on Earth slip towards a slow or rather sudden apocalypse. Most of the time, when this happens, the Foundation either manages to fix everything and bring it back to the way it was, or simply throws their hands up in the air and accepts their failure. In the Ad Astra per Aspera canon, however, a Latin phrase meaning to the stars through hardships, the Foundation decides to make the best of a bad situation by abandoning Earth entirely, taking humanity out into the cosmos. Here they'll encounter whole new sets of problems, trying to protect humanity on not just one planet, but many. As is usual with my videos on various SCP canons, this will only be a brief summary and look at Ad Astra, and I encourage, as always, for you to read some material yourself if you're interested. The Ad Astra per Aspera canon takes place in a different timeline than the baseline one, of course, one which started to diverge in the 1980s. At the space race's end, the Foundation took a greater interest in the stars, and as human space exploration continued, the need to research extraterrestrial anomalies grew as well. Beginning with some joint space agency ventures, the Foundation slowly established a network to monitor the solar system, all the while exploiting paratech and other anomalies to establish a physical presence beyond Earth. By the 2000s, orbital task forces, containment stations, lunar areas, and outposts on other planets form and expand. The progress is slow, as space is still a challenge to traverse, but they are the first steps away from Earth. In 2020, however, the world changes. Humanity becomes aware of anomalies through a K-class scenario, and the masquerade is broken. What exactly caused this isn't stated, but it could be the same thing from the Broken Masquerade canon, in which the Foundation inadvertently makes North Korea entirely disappear. Regardless, the Foundation decides that maintaining the Masquerade can no longer be a priority, and that staying on a planet easily susceptible to K-class events will inevitably lead to extinction. Instead, they decide to begin efforts to colonize the rest of the solar system, turning Mars habitable and building space habitats elsewhere. Economic incentives are offered for all of those willing to embark on these ventures, causing humanity to look to the stars. At the same time, interest in what lies beyond our solar system grows as well, and so the Extrasolar Activities Division is established. Their aim is to ascertain the dangers an interstellar humanity would face. Alongside this, the first faster-than-light engine is developed, called the Lang Distortion Drive. The Foundation begins to explore neighboring stars and establish the first extrasolar outposts, all of which is kept secret from the public. By 2030, humanity has a strong foothold in the rest of the solar system, and the Foundation has continued to explore beyond. They've run into issues, however, as the Lang distortion drives are glitch-prone. Pushing them past their standard accelerations causes cracks in reality in unpredictable ways, limiting the extent of Foundation extrasolar travel. Within the solar system, civilians begin establishing their own interplanetary settlements, acting independent of the Foundation. On Earth, meanwhile, conditions continue to deteriorate, 
primarily due to what the Foundation has dubbed Lethe events. Let's take a brief break to explain what these are. Specifically, Lethe events stem from SCP-3848, the designation for a collective memory loss phenomenon affecting all residents of any one specific region at any given time. Lethe is a classical Greek word, meaning oblivion or forgetfulness, and was said to be a river that flowed through the underworld of Hades, causing any who drank from it to experience complete forgetfulness. A Lethe event occurs when knowledge of a concept, object, or entity will be expunged through anomalous means from the memory of the affected humans, without warning, and can only be identified as having occurred at all by an outside observer. Any memories of interactions with forgotten things will still exist, but will have no context in the affected person's frame of reference. Memories of forgotten concepts will be vague and difficult to describe, with affected persons citing that attempting to recall details of occurrences feels counterintuitive and psychologically uncomfortable. These memory losses are long-lasting, and clinical treatment using targeted Nestix administration only has a 9% success rate so far. The first event known to the Foundation occurred in 2003 in Wisconsin, when 156 Foundation personnel and approximately 60,000 civilians suddenly and anomalously lost all knowledge of the existence of all canine species, including their pets. Part of the problem is that the Foundation has no idea how long these events have been going on, and how many concepts may have been purged from collective human memory. It's theorized that at least one major worldwide series of connected Lethe events has already taken place at some point in the recent past. The real problem is the extent of concepts that these events can cause to be forgotten, including the existence of boats, the existence of the turn signal indicator in passenger vehicles, the mechanics through which alternating current electricity functions, or even the fact that murder is illegal as well as immoral, which caused quite a stir in a city in Canada. These Lethe events continue to run rampant across Earth, with no way for the Foundation to stop or even slow them down, and instead they only increased in severity. A man by the name of Bruce Shulman Jr., however, managed to create a device capable of forcibly recalling memories which have been expunged from someone's mind, with a 94% success rate. He started selling these devices to Marshall, Carter, and Dark, and was fearful of what the Foundation would do if they got a hold of them, potentially waiting for humanity to be cleared of memories before swooping in and brainwashing them to be more compliant. In the end, the Foundation did get a hold of these devices, but used them to repair civilians' minds while the upper administration used them to alter their own personnel, making them work harder and become more obedient. At this point, though, it isn't a question of how civilization on Earth will collapse, but when. Finally, in 2041, humanity abandons Earth completely, with the largest evacuations in human history taking place. The Foundation and all available groups strain every resource they have to get as many people off-world as fast as possible. Unfortunately, half of humanity is left behind, stuck in the clutches of the Lethe events, never remembering what they lost. Over the next 130 years, humanity moves on from Earth, with corporations taking a foothold on the interplanetary scene. The key to new faster-than-light travel is unlocked with the Bifrost engine. Aliens migrate in from afar, while various groups move on from the loss of Earth, rebuilding or being replaced by the new. This is the bulk of the Ad Astra per Aspera canon, a time when the Foundation is trying to continue to safeguard humanity from anomalous threats, although now the playing field is much, much larger and humanity has never been so scattered. 
Like most canons, most of the content for Ad Astra is in the form of tales, such as in the Autonomy series or the Heavenwards Shrapnel series, but let's take a look at a few SCPs set within this timeline. SCP-4774 is the hypothetical Planet 9, a gas giant that could theoretically exist within our solar system beyond Neptune. If it does exist, it would be two to four times the diameter of Earth, and approximately ten times the mass. The anomalous traits begin to manifest whenever someone attempts to consider the possibility of the planet's existence. Subjects will universally arrive, even when not previously informed of the natures of space, planets in general, or the universe beyond the Earth, at the following conclusions. 1. That if this planet did exist, it would account for a number of irregularities in the motions of various astronomical bodies. 2. If it didn't exist, it would account for the lack of any human interaction with the planet at any point in history. 3. The possibility of life existing on the planet cannot be ruled out, and 4. That the possibility of sapient life existing on the planet cannot be ruled out. 5. The lack of evidence for the planet's existence could be accounted for by a natural sensory extrapolation concealment field encompassing the region. Finally, that the evidence for the planet's existence could be accounted for by a number of other minor sources, both anomalous and non-anomalous. The current theory among research staff is that the effects of SCP-4774 represent either an anomalous mimetic hypothesis masking the state of the planet, or an ontological anomaly surrounding its potential existence. Either way, the best way to settle all this is to go check out the planet itself and see if it does or does not exist. Five people were selected to undertake the voyage, and while the initial stage of the voyage passed without incident, complications arose when their vessel began to draw close to the destination, the predicted location of the planet. Rather than simply landing on the planet, or passing through the empty space, cameras reported a large area of visual distortion, followed by a flash of bright light. The ship's internal systems malfunctioned, jump-starting the Lang distortion drive and propelling the vessel far beyond the edge of the solar system. The crew were eventually recovered, but were unable to recall any aspect of the voyage prior to their recovery. Since the visual distortion and light are explainable by equipment malfunction, and the memory loss by a slow leak of the coolant system, the status of the planet continues to remain uncertain. After extensive questioning, it has been revealed that SCP-4774 affected subjects now arrive at the following additional hypotheses. 1. That if it existed, the planet would be incapable of supporting intelligent life. 2. That any such life forms as developed on the planet would necessarily be forced to adopt a method of partial non-existence due to the planet's natural inhospitability. Third, if the planet was found to not exist, the inhabiting lifeforms would clearly not be capable of existence. Fourth, that since the planet is hypothetical, the lifeforms native to the planet must also be hypothetical. Fifth, that investigation of the planet would reveal more details about it, and therefore render it either proven or disproven, eliminating the possibility of any hypothetical native entities existing. Finally, that if the Foundation truly exists for the greater good and considers sapient life, hypothetical or not, to be some degree human, the preservation of such a hypothetical race would be worth the cost of not exploring the true nature of the planet. Therefore, if such a claim to ethical standing is taken as true, the SCP Foundation and related organizations should prevent any such exploration 
and allow the native entities to continue subsisting in a state of ontological superposition. In other words, since the planet itself only hypothetically exists, anything living on it would also only hypothetically exist. This is apparently a purposeful development on these lifeforms part, in order to continue to exist here, or rather hypothetically exist here. Since any further research into the planet would eventually fully prove or disprove its existence, this would be the death of any hypothetical entities. Since the Foundation doesn't like to kill pretty much any entities, hypothetical or otherwise, their current containment procedures are pretty much just to keep well clear of it and stop thinking about it. It's noted that acquiring evidence sufficient to confirm or deny the planet's existence will be considered tantamount to genocide and handled accordingly. Also, there have been some requests to classify the potential inhabitants of the planet as an SCP themselves, but since there is no evidence of their existence, or lack thereof, and there never will be, these requests have been denied. Moving on then, SCP-3841 designates the remnants of a halted K-class event that occurred on the exoplanet Luton B an Earth-like planet 12 light-years away from Earth, at an unknown time in the recent past. The exact details of this halted event are unclear, though it is known to have resulted in the extinction of all life on the planet, including its native, sapient civilization, the Lutanians. The primary cause of the event is presumed to have been an organism whose skeletal remains span two continents on the planet, 3,300 kilometers long and possessing six legs, much like the bodies of the Lutanians. Its frontmost two legs possessed feet that could act as graspers, and when alive it likely had a skull with the same structure as the Lutanians, having two lower jaws and an upper jaw, but its entire head region has since been destroyed. Fragments of it have been found in craters across the planet, in orbit around the planet, and in orbit around the planet's star. Surrounding the lower portion of the skeleton is a crater with a 300km radius, likely the site where the entity began its formation. The hind legs and tail structure of the skeleton are incomplete, suggesting that the organism had not fully formed when it expired. How exactly the organism stayed alive in spite of its size is unclear. Additionally, it's unknown what substance forms the skeleton, as no tools so far have penetrated its surface, and no amount of applied heat or force have caused damage. Decaying organic matter is attached to the sides of the skeleton, holding some sections together, which progressively converts into a reddish-brown slurry of organic chemicals that fall from the skeleton. This currently covers much of the surrounding region, filling former lakes and oceans, and the last of the matter attached to the skeleton is expected to finish decaying in 50 years. Other anomalous structures have been discovered in the vicinity of the skeleton, with exploration teams investigating the Lutanian cities finding several structures of concentric circles formed from thousands of Lutanian cadavers, all of which had been attached by fusion of the limbs. Additionally, skyscrapers, primarily those ringing the crater, have calcified organic growths formed from fused Lutanian bodies that extend in directions away from the crater's epicenter. These growths reach lengths of up to 0.6 kilometers and heights of up to 1 kilometer, although many have collapsed in recent years. Symbols of potentially thaumic nature are carved into mountain ranges, islands, and remaining skyscrapers. The planet overall is barren as a result of the K-class event, with no living fauna, flora, or microscopic life having been found, and all regions previously containing liquid water are now entirely dry. CO2 and methane are the most abundant atmospheric gases, 
forming a dense haze across the planet that blocks light from the sun, and the atmospheric conditions and radiation levels are consistent with those of global nuclear fallout. Supporting this are the presence of highly irradiated craters in cities and other populated areas, mainly near the skeleton, undetonated nuclear weaponry laying around, and emptied missile silos at discovered military sites. Little knowledge exists on the civilization that was here, with present observations indicating that they had reached the same level of technological advancement as modern humanity. Book-like objects and the remnants of their computer systems have been uncovered, but all of them have contained cognitohazardous depictions of the massive entity that induce vegetative states in organisms that view them. Interestingly, the amount of cognitohazards present in these sources decreases the further away the source was from the entity. All of the cadavers of the Lutanians discovered have lacked a brain-equivalent organ, despite the presence of empty spaces in their skulls where a brain could reside. Most cadavers were found with their heads pointing in the direction of the entity's crater. While the exact events of the K-class scenario are not understood, there have been some hypotheses. Initially, it was believed that mass nuclear bombardment of the entity's head caused its destruction, which, while potentially an explanation for the nuclear fallout, was ruled out after tests with nuclear equipment failed to damage the recovered fragments of the skull. No other known weaponry possessed by the Lutanians could have caused the damage. The leading hypothesis, then, is that during the formation of the entity, it gained such a mass that it generated a gravitational field sufficient enough to alter the orbit of the planet's small moon. Continued alterations from the field and further size growth led to the moon's orbit intersecting with the entity, directly impacting its head. The accidental death then halted the K-class scenario, and this theory is consistent with the existence of the debris field around the planet and the widespread of skull fragments. The planet is not expected to be habitable for the next thousand years, if ever. From 2030 to 2033, Foundation probes that had been continually analyzing the chemicals in the entity's slurry detected increasing quantities of chemicals similar in nature to amino acids. RNA and DNA equivalent structures emerged soon after. In 2034, the first single-celled organisms were observed, and as of 2035, colonies of multicellular organisms have formed in the slurry and the land bordering it. The colonies primarily convert CO2 to O2. Additional probes and monitoring devices are scheduled for deployment on the planet, and previously predicted time spans for habitability are under reconsideration. So, some sort of anomalous entity resembling the native species of the planet began to rapidly grow to gigantuan proportions, and was eventually going to cover the entire planet, leading to a K-class scenario that would wipe out the native species. They tried to bomb it to hell and back, to no success, but eventually it grew big enough to have its own gravitational field. This drew in the small moon in the planet's orbit, colliding with its own head and killing it. Problem solved, and the K-class scenario was prevented, but unfortunately the impact wiped out all life on the planet and made it completely inhospitable. To the Foundation's surprise, however, the skeleton of the entity was continuing to leak out some sort of slurry that is now responsible for creating new life on the planet, life capable of surviving in the extreme conditions. As usual, life finds a way. Over on our moon, we have SCP-2821, a spherical spatial anomaly theorized to be a true vacuum, 
located in a spherical cavern 0.9 kilometers wide near Lunar Area 32. We're provided a lengthy footnote on what a true vacuum is, but essentially it's a region of space at the lowest possible energy level, which would operate under different laws of chemistry and physics, leading to the destruction of anything entering it. It's theorized that our universe exists as a false vacuum, and if a true vacuum were to manifest, it would expand at the speed of light, essentially destroying everything in the universe. Obviously, this is a bit of a concern for the Foundation. The size of this space on the moon changes erratically at the speed of light, though it currently has a diameter of 0.55 kilometers. Any objects entering the anomaly will become subject to the current laws of physics within it, which change at random intervals, often causing the destruction of said object. At times, objects can be seen forming or moving around within the anomaly, and occasionally these objects have left the anomaly, often breaking apart into various radioactive isotopes and particles. One central entity can be seen within the anomaly, appearing as a mass of rapidly flashing colors with occasional tendrils coming out of it. This entity has remained in the center of the space since its discovery, and it's theorized that it is either the cause of the anomaly or is preventing its expansion. Occasionally, radio transmissions are detected coming from the anomaly, a majority of which are just static, although some contain speech from an unknown individual and miscellaneous noises. The length and times at which these transmissions occur are random, though some of their content has similar themes. The anomaly was first discovered during tunneling from Lunar Area 32 to Lunar Area 13, which would have served as a means of transportation between the two sites. After digging 1.25 kilometers from Area 32, however, a piece of mining equipment fell into a large cavern containing the anomaly. At this point, the cavern had a diameter of 0.8 kilometers, and the size of the vacuum was fluctuating at a rapid rate. During the ensuing investigation and containment, it reached a diameter of 0.9 kilometers, expanding the current cavern size and creating a hole to the surface. This led to the current accepted theory of it being a true vacuum. If the vacuum were to begin expanding at the rate dictated in quantum field theory, it would lead to a VK-class reality restructuring event, with anything entering the anomaly following its new laws of physics and chemistry. Both the Moon and Earth would be utterly destroyed within a couple of seconds, and after around six hours, most of the solar system would be destroyed as well. Since the size of the vacuum changes at random, this could occur at any given time, so the Foundation is working on creating a suitable means of containment to prevent this scenario from occurring. The leading plan is called Project Heisenberg Styriakis, and involves the development of a modified Scranton reality anchor to either force the vacuum to stay at a set size, or to neutralize it entirely. The current issues with the plan include transporting the device to the area, and the possibility of unknown interactions between the vacuum and the device, which could cause worsened containment, or the expansion of the anomaly. We're provided a list of various different sets of physics that have been observed within the anomaly, starting with the designation for the most common occurrences of differing physics, when the anomaly is either rapidly changing or otherwise preventing any major effects. During these times, the most that is seen are occasional particles, a visual effect resembling static and clouds of particles. This state is likely what a non-anomalous true vacuum would appear like if one were to exist. Occasional radio transmissions consisting of static are detected coming from SCP-2821 in this set. 
Second is a set of physics in which objects in the form of light blue rocks orbit the central entity. A probe was sent into the vacuum, which experienced some communication issues, which isn't too surprising. It began to be pulled into this orbit, and was destroyed when three of the rocky objects collided with it. A secondary probe was sent in, equipped with thrusters that would activate three minutes after entering, around the time it would enter orbit. Upon thruster activation, the probe began to exit the anomaly with two of the rocky objects following it. These instances vanished after exiting, releasing large amounts of gamma radiation. Camera footage taken from inside shows the area outside is heavily distorted, suggesting that outside light is bent when entering the anomaly. So far, this has been the only physics set to allow for objects originating from outside of the anomaly to survive within it. Next is a set that initially resembled the previous one, but after an hour, all movement of the rocky objects ceased. During this time, sensors in the chamber detected a temperature of 0.0000001 Kelvin before malfunctioning and breaking. Objects brought into the chamber would lose momentum as it got closer to SCP-2821, gradually slowing until reaching a complete stop, likely due to the extremely cold temperature. It is unknown how cold the anomaly got during this, though likely it reached temperatures incredibly close to zero Kelvin. The central entity experienced no changes in movement or behavior, but a radio transmission was detected afterwards in Nepali, which translated to the place outside of worlds. In the next set, various objects were seen drifting through the anomaly resembling a variety of green, blue, and purple complex structures. Inspection with long zoom cameras show that these instances are also composed of smaller structures, possibly going down to the atomic level. It is believed that these structures are the result of atoms being able to form chemical bonds that naturally form these shapes. At times, smaller instances would go through gaps in larger ones and vanish. One instance exited the vacuum and immediately broke apart into radioactive isotopes of carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen. A radio transmission of Hurrian Hymn Number 6, the oldest known melody, being sung by a female voice, was detected three times during this set. Another time, various objects resembling nebula manifested inside of the vacuum for an entire month with bright spots similar in appearance to stars in and around them. After this month, the color of objects and the central entity began to become red in hue over the course of two months, with movement decreasing as well. At the end of the two months, no movement was observed, and everything in the vacuum was colored with various shades of red. It's theorized that this was redshift an effect in physics where light coming from an object increases in wavelength towards the red end of the spectrum, which occurs when an object is moving farther away from the viewer. It's believed that this was caused by the speed of light decreasing in the anomaly. Three months later, the vacuum entered another physics set, with normal coloration returning after an hour, which was believed to be the speed of light returning to its normal value. A radio transmission was detected coming from the vacuum at the end of this set, which showed the cosmic microwave background with a Sierpinski triangle overlaid on it, a fractal made of equilateral triangles. In another set, the central entity was replaced with a black spherical object, and the vacuum reached a brightness of around 100,000 lumens per square meter. Objects were rapidly expelled from the vacuum in the form of twisted chunks of rock and metal, along with unknown objects made of various elements on the Foundation's expanded periodic table. 
One chunk of metal had what resembled the insignia of the Foundation Orbital Division on it, along with unknown text below it. Space-time monitors around the anomaly detected negative 190 trillion Gs during this set, with theories including the reversal of gravity and the formation of a white hole, a hypothetical reverse of a black hole in which matter and light can leave it but not enter. During another set, the vacuum, objects inside, and the entity vanished for approximately four hours. Experiments performed in the space previously occupied by the vacuum showed no anomalous properties, suggesting that it had been neutralized at the time. After four hours, however, it reappeared, with the theory being that the event was the result of the vacuum's physics randomly becoming standard physics, though it is unknown how this could occur with its possible state as a true vacuum. This has led to debate over the accuracy of this theory. Despite its disappearance, a radio transmission was detected coming from the empty cavity, saying, The mind numbs in that white expanse. The last set listed featured one of the entity's tendrils beginning to extend to lengths beyond those which had been previously observed, forming a spiral pattern centered around itself. After expanding to the edge of the vacuum, Foundation anti-cognitohazard bots blocked footage of the rest of the event. This event is the only observed behavior of its kind from the entity, and a request to experiment with the footage to determine any cognitohazardous effects is pending. At one point, a four-minute-long radio transmission was detected, with audio composed of static, multiple languages, and miscellaneous noises. Known languages are Spanish, Icelandic, Yiddish, Scottish Gaelic, Ortothan, and Esperanto. We're provided a transcript of the legible parts of the transmission, with some words not completely translated to English. The message begins with the words trapped, or imprisoned, and says that there was void, and it was maddening. A horror, or abomination, made something stay, and they built a lock and threw away the key. Something left area out of realms and back to unknown. It was shattered or broken, and the comrades were ensnared in the wires and bled. The home it returned to is in chaos, Reality ended with something's absence, and its killer stares back at it and into its being. It's consumed and fragmented and torn asunder. The guards' hounds got them and ripped their minds. The flesh was extracted and stored forever. It mentions Yesodon, which the Church of the Second Hytoth believes to be an organization or an unofficial name for one. The message continues with, When it is slain, when the embodiment is struck down, followed by sounds similar to construction work, and a word meaning order or patterns. The message ends with the words, Scream, Yesedin, listen, followed by static and noises similar to the sound of waves. So, ignoring all that weird last section, what this is is potentially one of the greatest threats to the Foundation's entire existence, as a true vacuum in normal conditions would rip through the universe and annihilate everything. So far, it's just sitting in the moon and changing every so often, but the Foundation has no idea why exactly it's not expanding as it should. That brings us to the central entity inside of it, and all the radio transmissions. This is a Pattern Screamer, an entity from a prior universe that managed to somehow survive the destruction of that universe and survive in this one in some form. I've done a whole video on these if you're interested, but generally Pattern Screamers don't exist in our universe in any sort of physical sense. 
but are rather embedded into the very fabric of reality. This one, however, seems to be a little different, and managed to regain its physical form. It's now trying to reconstruct the physics around it to better suit itself, a set of physics wholly incompatible with our own. Finally, let's end with SCP-6372, a massive stone monolith located on an uninhabitable planet 25 light-years away from our solar system. The monolith is precisely 10 kilometers by 10 kilometers by 100 kilometers in size, and is solely constructed from a currently unidentified, smooth, black, and seemingly indestructible material. Despite this, engravings of untranslated runes regularly appear on its surface, not correlating to any languages known by humanity, the Martians, the Terran Yu from SCP-4547, or otherwise. Foundation empaths and telepaths claim the symbols emanate a worried feeling of abandonment. The exact meaning of this and the translation of the symbols discovered are still being compiled. Although the monolith bears no points of entry, a foundation scan revealed the structure to be hollow inside after just 10 meters of wall depth, forming approximately 9,959 cubic kilometers of emptiness within. What, if anything, resides inside there currently remains unknown. From inside, the monolith itself constantly exudes a notable buzzing sound, although whether this is caused by some unidentified property of the stone it was built with, or is made by additional anomalous phenomena within the structure itself, remains under investigation. The leader of the researchers on the project leaves a note here, stating that it is not just the sound of buzzing that has piqued their interest, as they are aware of multiple materials that emanate similar sounds. They note that the document severely lacks specificity and context, as beyond the buzzing sound are faint echoes, reminiscent of undecipherable whispers. Many of the researchers have heard these during their research, and further deeper the sounds are louder, almost as if a loud drum was being played somewhere inside. They state that there is a certain rhythm within the monolith, and its songs are what truly intrigue them. Whatever it is, they have to know the truth. Unfortunately, the monolith has so far been entirely resistant to every type of damage the Foundation has attempted to inflict on it, anomalous or not. This property seems to also extend to immunity to weather patterns and standard physical forces that should affect the structure, such as gravitational forces. This trait has ensured that any approximation of the structure's age, research into its exact composition, or further analysis of its characteristics remains impossible by their current means. The only thing that can be extrapolated about the monolith is the fact that it is not native to the planet it is located on. Following extensive study, the research personnel came to the conclusion that further research and understanding of the structure's purpose is entirely unfeasible without gaining entry inside it. Direct force had been authorized to attempt to gain entry, and the personnel also requested a linguopath be sent to assist them. A linguopath is someone born with the anomalous capability to understand every written language, said to be one in a billion, and so the Foundation told them that one would be sent within the next decade due to Project Overload. Not a big surprise due to how many alien languages they were likely encountering during this time period. In the meantime, they began entry testing, starting with a standard diamond drill, this, of course, had no effect, and broke upon prolonged contact. They then tried a nuclear-powered deep-space mining satellite operating from the planet's orbit, which ran non-stop for an entire week until its power supply ran out. 
The part of the monolith it targeted did not break, but did in fact heat up by 0.002 degrees Celsius. Later, they tried some standard deep space mining explosives, which ionized the entirety of the planet's atmosphere around the part of the monolith they were focused on. The structure itself yielded no damage, however. They then tried a different approach, with thaumaturgy, enacting numerous thaumaturgic rituals ranging from alchemical mass exchange to attempting ripping of the material from the inside out. All of these rituals invariably failed, and research staff concluded that the material it's composed of is a perfect thaumaturgic isolator. Having failed with magic, they returned to a classic, deciding to bombard the monolith with nukes. After the nuclear explosion, research staff determined that the blast peeled away a single micrometer of the monolith's shell. Although this was noted to have indeed damaged the structure, it's not a feasible entry plan, with calculations pointing to the need for approximately 10 million warheads to break through. Later, they decided to try something a bit less conventional, by utilizing their warp drive capable ships to simply bypass the monolith in real space and reappear inside of it. Following the activation of the engine, however, the monolith still persisted within the zero reality space and prevented the ship from bypassing it. The exact meaning of this remains unclear. Then they tried going back to the older drives, the Lang distortion drives, which operated by breaking down reality. They took pieces of these drives and used them to target only a section of local reality, one containing the walls of the monolith, and removed the concept of baseline laws of physics from it to allow for destruction attempts. Despite this, the monolith remained indifferent, suggesting it adheres to different laws of physics than the ones present in baseline reality. All of their conventional or less than conventional methods failed, so it came time to throw some SCPs at it, which is quite surprising. Generally, cross-testing with other anomalies is only done in dire situations, not to try and crack into a seemingly harmless structure on a dead planet. They started with SCP-3794, a hammer capable of turning all biological matter in encounters into pico de gallo salsa. Why exactly they started with this one is perhaps a bigger mystery than what's inside of the monolith. They struck the walls of the structure once with the hammer, but nothing occurred, suggesting that the monolith is entirely non-biological in composition. Later, they tried using SCP-063, a toothbrush capable of effortlessly cleaving through any material it encounters. Although I would have guessed this had a strong chance of working, it also did nothing upon contact other than removing all dust and foreign particles present on the wall's surface. The last test listed on the document is with SCP-6161, a knife capable of cutting through any material it encounters, at which point it turns the object into differently flavored cake. The results box for this test is blank, however. Shortly after the commencement of that test, all contact with the provisional site nearby was abruptly lost. For this reason, the results of that test remain unknown. A fleet of recovery ships was promptly sent in to investigate and ascertain the status of the site. Upon arrival, the Foundation came to find the site having been entirely destroyed, with its structure having seemingly melted and all of the on-site personnel reduced to skeletons. Their suits and apparatus were likewise rendered unusable. Following further examination, the monolith was verified to have actually been breached, with a small, several-centimeter opening found on its northern face, roughly 1.25 meters above ground level. 
a single broken knife handle was found nearby, with additional skeletons surrounding it and the opening. Personnel peering into the structure from the opening reported it being empty and that it appeared to be composed entirely out of cake from the inside. On the opposite side of the monolith, another breach was also discovered, larger than the first. Cake material scattered several kilometers away from the opening indicates that a sudden large explosion was the cause of the breach. The monolith itself was also noted to have been silent for the first time since its discovery. Despite the apparent loss of all data stored at the site, the unsealing of its exclusionary deep well archives revealed a record of all data transfers into and out of the site. Among standard project files previously submitted to the Interfoundation database, a single edit request was found that had not received authorization. The edit request in question was submitted by the account of Samantha Baker, a linguopath that had been sent to the site as per request, although her arrival was not noted in the database. The request contained a singular sentence with a message titled SCP-6372 Translation. Its exact meaning and importance to the monolith and the site's fate, if applicable, remains unknown. The translation reads, This is not a place of honor. This is a commonly known phrase associated with long-term nuclear waste warning messages designed to indicate to future civilizations that the nuclear waste located near the message is not to be meddled with. Whatever exactly was inside of the monolith doesn't really matter other than the fact that it was highly dangerous and left there by some other civilization. The planet the monolith was located on was completely devoid of life, and the monolith was designed to be practically impenetrable. It was, in theory, the perfect dumping ground for hazardous materials, until the Foundation came along, desperate for answers to every question the universe might hold. That's sort of a good summation of the Ad Astra canon, in which the Foundation leaves behind all of their troubles on Earth, protecting humanity from the strange and unusual, but are instead thrust into a whole galaxy of trouble. In many ways, the Ad Astra canon is simply a way for authors to throw around all sorts of wild planetary and astronomical SCPs without getting too worried about how it might affect Earth. Between numerous dead or ruined planets and various alien species, Ad Astra certainly doesn't have to keep things too grounded, for better or worse. While some might not gel with the more advanced, fantastical nature of Ad Astra articles, it's not a big surprise to see SCP authors break free from just about every conventional norm associated with the SCP universe. SCPs are cool, and space is cool, so it only makes sense to bring the two together. <laughs>